Anthony Bourdain tragically passed away on June 8th, 2018. His death brought attention to the issue of mental health and highlighted the fact that mental health struggles can affect anyone, regardless of their public image or achievements. Following Bourdain's passing, there's been an increased awareness and discussion surrounding mental health in the culinary and entertainment industries. Many celebrities and professionals have opened up about their own struggles, aiming to reduce the stigma associated with mental health issues. It's so important to continue conversations about mental health awareness and provide support for those facing challenges. That's why this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible. And this is so important because finding a therapist can be super hard, especially when you're limited to the options in your area. BetterHelp is a platform that makes finding a therapist easier because it's online, it's remote, and by filling out a few questions, BetterHelp can match you to a professional therapist in as little as a few days. It's easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist. It's betterhelp.com slash F-O-A-B. There's a link in the podcast description. Get started today and enjoy 10% off your first month. Discount code F-O-A-B will be automatically applied. Actually, BetterHelp was my first foray into therapy because I really wasn't sure how to get started and I had uh, experienced a really big life event. It was the first platform I turned to to demystify therapy, make it easy, and also it was very affordable. So very exciting to be able to partner with BetterHelp and spread the therapy gospel. It's something that I know you and I, Fab, really believe in and talk about often. Especially with resources like BetterHelp that makes it more accessible. I mean, we do speak so often about mental health struggles in the restaurant industry, making therapy affordable and accessible to line cooks and restaurant workers and people mm -hmm. who might not have traditional health insurance is something that I feel so strongly about. So highly recommend society will thank you. You will thank you. Uh, you know, your family and friends will thank you. Young men, please seek therapy. It's worked wonders for me. It's betterhelp.com slash F-O-A-B. There's a link in the podcast description. Get started today and enjoy 10% off your first month. Discount code F-O-A-B will be automatically applied. Metro Manila, bustling, sprawling Southeast Asian capital of the Philippines, home to somewhere between 12 to 20 million people, the world's most densely populated city. Welcome to Friends of Anthony Bourdain podcast where we'd speak to the friends and colleagues of the late and great Anthony Bourdain. I'm one of your hosts, Fabrizio Villapondo, a food blogger, recipe developer, and ex-clumsy waiter. And I'm Emily Fedner, your co-host. I am a cook, host, recipe developer, uh, and I own a pasta pop-up here in New York. We are both huge Bordenophiles, we like to say. And today we had the privilege of speaking to another fan and friend of Anthony Bourdain, Chef Margarita Forez. She's one of the most, I think, pleasantly badass people, I think. What a, what a descriptor. Pleasantly just, badass. Like, so lovely and positive, but also all the stuff. I mean, she was honored Asia's best female chef yeah, in, in 2016. Yeah, in 2016, she won Asia's best female chef. But I think that uh, Chef Forez is most well known for her basically pioneering of Italian cuisine in the Philippines. Uh, she's had restaurants, I believe, since the late 80s, early 90s, starting with a catering company, but just different concepts focused on Italian food, using Filipino ingredients, and also championing uh, Filipino regional ingredients and farmers and um, things like that. So she is, she's been cooking for, for decades. And, and the way that she describes her food and from what we've seen, just so brilliantly and creatively and respectfully marrying two cultures, keeping the Italian essence as well as promoting and keeping the I Filipino know. essence. Um, <laughs> I could just, really learn from her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With mine. I think a lot of us could learn from her. Absolutely. Filipinos give of themselves, of their time, their money, their love to others. They do and continue to do what needs to be done to survive. She had the pleasure of meeting Anthony Bourdain. I think he, she said it was in 2014. Yeah, um, in she, his apartment in the Upper East. Yeah, Island. her son was friends with Anthony Bourdain's au pair, mm -hmm. um, who was Filipina. So they had the opportunity to actually physically go to his apartment on the Upper East Side and spend an afternoon together. And I can speak for both of us when I say we're 
freaking jealous. Very jealous. (laughs) Um, What an opportunity. And it's pretty rare that someone meets their, you know, they say, don't meet your heroes. heroes. Well, it's rare someone comes. I think, says the, tells us a story where that is not the case. Yeah, she seems just as thrilled by him and and his role in culture and his role in kind of uplifting Filipino food and Filipino f- people as she was before she met him. So that's yeah. really an incredible feat. Uh, so we're, we had the best conversation with her about everything and geeked out about pasta because, as one does, we loved speaking with her. Yeah. So here we have our lovely conversation with the incredible Margarita Forez. Margarita, thank you so much for joining us today. We have a depth of things to cover, and you've had such a an amazing, iconic career. So, welcome. No, this is it's my pleasure and my honor, actually. And um, thank you so much for having me. We have a lot to talk about, but let's get right to to the reason we're here together. Uh, yes. How did you meet Anthony Bourdain, and what was that first meeting like? Oh my goodness! I mean. Um, it happened actually in 2014, so that's like nine years ago. It's still kind of very vivid in my mind and in my heart because actually my son, Amado, who's an absolute foodie, just like me, was in touch with Anthony's au pair, who's Filipina. Her name is Myra. He's on. And she was the au pair of Anthony's daughter. My son is is so kind of like resourceful. And he wanted to get his Anthony Bourdain book autographed. So he had been in touch with Myra and he got her to have the book signed. But when he got out of college, actually in in the end of July uh, in 2014, he was able to kind of get Myra to arrange a meeting for us with Anthony, Amado and me, really kind of like... um, for me, it almost felt like I was meeting God, right? Um, especially because of, of, I mean, what Anthony stands for and, and what he represents for the industry that I'm in. And Myra was like very careful. And she said, you know, please don't say how I was able to get this to happen, but we'll make it happen. And we, they got Amada and me to come up to Anthony's apartment on the Upper East Side. And it was a, a wonderful, like glorious Summer, summer day, it was the like 3 p.m. in the afternoon. My son and I, Amara and I were like with goosebumps forever because we were like so excited. And as we were going on the elevator, I, I was like pinching myself to say, is this really happening? <laughs> and finally, the apartment door opened and Anthony met us at the door. Both his wife and his, his daughter were, were there. And at the same time, actually, because... Myra's son is the same age of Anthony's daughter. She actually became like the best friend. Uh, he became the best friend of Anthony's daughter. So he was always like a playmate. And I mean, just being in Anthony Bourdain's apartment, Amado and I were like, I mean, the two of us were like super, not just starstruck, but like um, feeling like, is this really happening to us, right? So we we had this like long conversation about food and Anthony was was talking about his interest in Filipino food because, I mean, he had like a little bit of really past experience, you know, tasting Filipino food. And I, I remember that in his living room, um, we were seated and he offered Amado and me um, bottles of San Pellegrino. And from a distance, I could see his like iconic duck press. He had this like antique duck press in the living room that was like a trophy. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, I can't believe his books were behind um, the couch where we were seated. And it was just like the most magical afternoon for Amado and me. We talked um, a lot about just, you know, the restaurant industry and, and what I was doing in Manila with food. And at the same time, I mean, it was just like, really just touching base and kindred spirits just getting together. And after about an hour and a half, I mean, I felt like sad that it was almost over, but the experience will always be like in Amados in my heart. And after that, Myra and I kept in touch. And actually when, when a few years after Anthony came to Manila, 
for like a, a street food festival. He also filmed his show actually where he did the lechon with a friend of mine in Cebu. So Amado and I were like groupies. We didn't get a chance to see him in Manila, but we were like super like informed about where he was every moment of his days that he was in Manila. So it was it was really kind of like after that, I think that what's also very um, special for me is that Anthony was so super instrumental in getting Filipino food kind of like out there because it's always been a challenge for us in the Philippines. Being Asian, we always feel kind of like sad that all the other Asian cuisines have taken over, whether it's Thai, Vietnamese, or um, even Indonesian food or Malaysian food. And it's always been kind of like um, a real puzzle for us why Filipino food um, never really got out there. But after Anthony featured the lechon on his show, and I think it wasn't just the food actually that he featured on that show of his, he talked a lot about us Filipinos as people and as care caregivers. And I think that a lot of this had to do with Myra's family being so much a part of Anthony's family through the years. And I think that it was so poignant to see that episode because being Filipina, I saw that it wasn't just about the sinigang and the sisig and the lechon and the adobo, but really, I think Anthony had a really soft spot for us as a, as, as a people. It really helped um, the world discover more about us um, and our country. And I think that for me, if, if um, there's anything that I would feel most important about what Anthony gave to us as a country and as a people is really that he brought us out into the world and made people see what was unique about us and um, unique about our cuisine and about our culture. So all of us in the Philippines are like, like super absolute fans up to this day. And Ask any Filipino, Anthony Bourdain is like super top of mind for us. It's really such a common thread with a lot of different cultures and people that we have the honor of speaking with. You know, Anthony Bourdain didn't just highlight the delicious food, which is very important in any culture and a huge source of connection, but also the people behind the mm. food in a way that was equally, if not more important than just something tasting delicious. So that's really amazing to hear. Did he cook anything for you in his apartment? No, nothing. Actually, it was just San Pellegrino. <laughs> but I think that he didn't really have to like entertain us and, and, and um, cook for us. I think that everybody knew that he was an absolute foodie. But just being, yeah. you know, in the same room with him, I mean, that, that was like super special for us. And like you said earlier, I mean, I think every episode of Anthony's show was not so much just about the food. It was really about like life and the, the best part of life. Um, whether it was like positive stuff or not so positive stuff, it was really like the reality of, of human nature and, and the uniqueness of every place that he visited. And I think that's what made Anthony super special to the world is that, um, he was just so real. And I think that there's sometimes a lack of that in the world today. You see a lot of food shows, a lot of reality shows about food. But I think that everything that Anthony did was actually most touching because it wasn't, it wasn't contrived. It was always just so real and so in touch with reality. And I think that's what made it so special. Like going to what you said about speaking not only about the food, but also the people and the the people that make the food and and uh, where it comes from. I, I've spoken about this before. So my family's from Mexico. And I think one of the first things I ever saw was the Mexico episode of, I think, No Reservations. And to me, yes. I think it's like the first 15, 20 minutes it, before you see the food. He just talks about what the Mexican people have done in the food industry and you go in the back of many kitchens and it's hardworking Mexicans and talks about the people. And like you said, both the good and the bad of what's going on in the country and the culture, assuming that, you know, that must have been 
so beautiful seeing, especially, you know, in the Philippines that many people, they should know more about the food, but unfortunately they don't. And I think that's what was so special about Tony and his show was, you know, you could see a food show where you, you see the dishes and everything. You might not know what it could possibly taste like, but then with his show and his way with words, you see like the culture, like the sense of humor in the people, even, you know, some of the more darker or sad parts of the country. And But all together, the way that he wrapped it up, I thought was just poetic and beautiful. It makes you want to be like, where is the best Filipino spot in my town? And I need to taste what this food tastes like. And, uh, and also, yeah. I think I can speak for Emily that we are very jealous. And it's such a pleasure hearing <laughs> you talk about this intimate inter uh, encounter with Tony, it's amazing. Yes, hugely jealous. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a food show. It was always more than a food show. It was a show where there, where there was food, but it was a show about culture and people and humanity, which which we love. But you know, we all also love food. And I think all three of us can really connect about that. Your food is really special and unique. So will you tell us a little bit more about your culinary journey and your your food actually my my journey with food started with learning about italian food which is really strange i always say to myself why is it that i did i started to like cook pasta before i even got into making our own adobo or lechon or sinigang and it happened for me as a teenager when i moved to new york in the 70s my family was there in political exile and in the 70s, actually, it was a real like time of Italianization in New York, right? A lot of yes. young Italians had moved to New York during that time because things weren't great in Italy. So they were opening like really super interesting Italian restaurants, but not your typical like Chianti bottles from the ceiling and red and white uh, checkered tablecloths on the table, right? not Southern Italian style or not like American Italian style, but Northern Italian like pizzerias with thin crusts or restaurants with cream-based pasta and risotto. And that's kind of like what I fell in love with. So I was working actually with Valentino at that time. I was a gopher at the Valentino office. So I fell in love with the culture and, and the Italians I was working with. So I would try to like cook at home at nights and eventually I would like invite them over and see if I could like make pasta for them. And eventually it just became something that I felt got me in the gut. I, although I was working in fashion, but it was more like cooking at night and setting the table that really made me happy. My family was living in New York at that time and in 1985, unfortunately, my grandfather passed away. My family was always part of the opposition um, politically in the Philippines. And when my grandfather passed away in 1985, we all went home to Manila. And in six months, the revolution in the Philippines happened where um, President Marcos was overthrown. I think that maybe it was providential that I had to go home because Life in Manila is a bit slow. After everything politically settled down, I was like, oh my God, I miss the buzz in New York. And I still have this like desire to want to know if I want to continue cooking Italian food. So that's when I decided in September of 1986, actually to go to Italy. I found um, an Italian signora who was teaching in her home just out of her apartment in Florence. And I mean, I think when I got to Italy, I, I almost felt like, I felt like a homing pigeon. It just felt so right. And I guess the rest is history because it was just four months that I was in Florence, but I felt like a sponge. I absorbed everything. And when I went back home for Christmas in December, I started to cook in Manila, tried to cook um, Italian food for people. That was in, in 1986, 87. And that's what started me um, working with food. And then eventually I started to cook in people's homes, just small dinners. And then eventually the dinners got bigger. It took me about 10 years doing private catering for Italian food um, to open a restaurant, uh, my own restaurant in 1997. But 
I think what was more important was that I think that the biggest lesson I learned from Italy is really their, their soft power, their respect for ingredients and how Italian culture is so kind of like, and, and the cuisine is also kind of like so homegrown. So it also forced me actually to be very inquisitive again and search about our own cuisine in the Philippines. The biggest challenge for me was finding good tomatoes in the Philippines to do Italian food. And our tomatoes are sour here back home. We use tomatoes to sour dishes because our, our tomatoes are so acidic. So that whole challenge of working with our own ingredients and seeing how I could do Italian food with them, that made me super discover more about our own cuisine and our own ingredients. I love the concept of applying the ingredients around you to creating a different a different culture's food. You know, I think that's every challenge for every immigrant. Like mm -hmm. my parents are from the from Ukraine and my oh. mom will make borscht, but she'll use really random American vegetables in the borscht, but it's it's still borscht, but you're just tasked with creating the dishes you love and recreating a culture you love, but with what's in front of you. Mm. So that's a, a really cool part of how you cook Italian food. It's Italian food, yes. but with Filipino ingredients. So what would you say is a dish that represents that, that marriage the best for you? Well, I'll tell you apart from the, from like working with the tomatoes to make them sweet. Um, I think discovering that we Filipinos also have squash flowers. I love squash flowers in Italy, right? They stuff them with mozzarella and anchovies, etc. And here, we Filipinos, we're, we're short people as well. So our squash flowers are tiny compared to the ones in Italy. But when I found out that we had them here as well, I mean, I think that that was one of my like biggest eureka's to be able to try to do what Italians do with squash flowers, but using our Filipino squash flowers. Aside from that, I think also discovering our beautiful palm hearts here. I remember um, a restaurant in Florence that was doing a beautiful salad just with shaved palm hearts and beautiful Parmigiano slivered. And I asked them, where did the palm hearts come from? And the, the chef at the restaurant came to me with a can and the, the palmitos, the palm hearts were from Puerto Rico and canned. So I said, oh my God, when I get back to the Philippines, I'm definitely gonna use our beautiful palm hearts, shave them, use them super fresh with the Parmigiano from, from Italy. So a lot of, of those things, you know, when, when you apply it in the country where you are, you're at, it also allows you to be a bit more creative. And aside from that, you get a lot of Eurekas as well and realize that the world is so small that you may be able to find things that are similar and be able to work with them as well. I feel like it's such a beautiful way also to revolutionize cuisine and even slip into delicious little accidents and create something yes. new. So I'm curious. So at the time when you're, you're doing these dinners, uh, making Italian food, what was the sort of like, how did it get received in the Philippines at the time? And like, was Italian food popular? Like, could you, were there many restaurants at the time where you could eat uh, Italian food? Well, in, in the 80s, the Italian food that we had in Manila was much like American Italian food. The mm -hmm. restaurants were always rustic. The, the way I explained earlier with the Chianti bottles in the ceiling, everything almost like totally like red sauce based. More like like really the, the, the Southern Italian cuisine that was brought to America. When I tried to do different things and do fresh pasta and do pastas with cream sauce. And I think that it it kind of like made people more interested also and mm. they they felt that there was this like new way of discovering italian food it was also um a way for me to be purist about it when i opened my restaurant in 1997 it was a simple italian cafe concept i did it in like shopping malls in in manila and Filipinos were always used to sweet, sweet bolognese sauce, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's that's like the Filipino taste profile. And then like the Jollibee really spaghetti. Had... <laughs> exactly. Jollibee yeah. spaghetti, exactly. So good, and we by didn't the way. have so um, pasta that was al dente. 
So when I opened the restaurant, I said, no, I need to be purist about this because we had clients that would send the pasta back and say, but this is like so raw. Like the pasta is not cooked. I said, no, that's al dente. So I, I needed to like kind of like put my foot down. And I think that mm -hmm. in hindsight, 26 years after, I, I'm, I'm super grateful that I did kind of like be strict about it because then it forced people to really appreciate like real Italian food at that time. Mm -hmm. And and what's nice is that the brand Chivo, which is the first one that I started, is now 26 years old and people still look to it as like probably the the pioneer in bringing like really authentic Italian, modern Italian food to, to Manila. I mean, somebody has got to do it. And I think that every cuisine that is introduced to people of a country or of a different culture kind of goes through the same evolution. You know, you think yes. about New York and you think about Chinese food, for instance, you see Americanized Chinese food and it's taken, you know, decades for regionalized Chinese food to become popular. Exactly. And people are like, no, I want Sichuan food. I want Hunan food, you know, and um, the same thing happens with Italian food. Uh, the same thing happened to, with Italian food here in New York, as I'm sure happened in, in the Philippines where you know, we started with a bunch of Southern Italian and Sicilian immigrants, red sauce joints. But, you know, for instance, my business partner at my pasta pop-up, her family is from Genoa and Venice. My business partner is Sarah Raffetto and her family owns Raffetto's Fresh Pasta in oh, Greenwich okay. Village. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's been around no, for a I've long time. Of Raffetto's, of course. Oh, amazing. Sarah Raffetto is my business partner. And it's interesting because a lot of the items that they sell at Raffetto's were probably not popular at the time. There's like a wall, there's, you know, mushroom pesto, lots of pestos, lots of, you know, creamy things and, and just different items that were not necessarily popular at the time, but somebody's got to do it and somebody's got to introduce those things and kind of, uh, kind of explain that, Hey, Italian food is not just Italian food and exactly. Filipino food is not just Filipino food. There's a lot more to it. I think that regionality actually is one of the things that's super similar with Italian food and Filipino food. You know, we're both like the Italian booth is the same length as the Philippine archipelago. And that's why I feel that learning everything about Italian food will never happen for me the same way learning everything about Filipino food will also be a challenge because like I said earlier, every little town, the food changes, the ingredients change. And what I love about it is that it's always like a, a journey. It's always like a super quest for finding something new. And I think that that will always happen for me with Italy and with my own country. And I think that maybe that's what Tony was trying to do as well, right? I mean, he, he really visited like a lot of like big place, I mean, big famous places, but he also visited nondescript places that were like super interesting as well. And I think that that's the thing that people loved about him. It inspires us who also want to know so much more about cuisine and about culture. We always want to be like him, you know, as, as, as we live our lives in, 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 in the quest for loving, finding new food and just finding new things about, about life and what makes life interesting. Yeah, he really became the blueprint for anyone who was interested in exploring culture through cuisine and just learning from him and how he did it and highlighting the the tiny regions as like he can go to Rome, but he'll also go to some fishing village off the coast and, exactly. and love them both. It's it's interesting too, like even more specific than regions too, just how he would go into people's real locals homes and then just see like, you know, even within a region or within a town, it's so interesting too how the same dish could be interpreted so differently within like, in my case, La Abuelita or the Nona or whatever figure in the house is the one that's cooking. And the way that he would highlight that within each country, culture, region, and even individual homes. Yeah, you so. get, it's, it's actually intimidating. We were saying this right before you got here, how <laughs> it's so exciting, the prospect of, you know, there's so much to learn and there's mm -hmm. so much to eat and try that, but it, you know, it, it shifts on such a granular level, literally home to home that none of us will ever. And it's a source of excitement and adventure, but also for me, such a source of anxiety that I will never try everything. And it's, it's stressful, but, but amazing. I just wanted to ask you what your number one favorite pasta dish is since we're all pasta lovers here. Oh gosh. I actually love long noodles. I have a very like favorite 
like super special Filipino ingredient, which is like baby crab fat. So mm. I, I, my favorite pasta would be to make a really nice al dente linguine using the baby crab fat from the Philippines, squeezing uh. a little bit of our Philippine lime, the calamansi on it. I love long noodles and I love the, I love the most simple ones that have only like one or two ingredients in them. And I think that being able to do a long, a long pasta, a spaghettini or a linguine, like super perfect is the biggest challenge. A lot of the fresh pastas or even like tubular ones, you can mask and, and make it taste great. Um, but I think long noodles are the, the biggest challenge. And so I, I would like, for me, my most favorite pasta would be any long noodle with the baby crab fat from, from my country. And I wish that Anthony was still around and Tony was still around. I would love to give him like a case of the baby crab fat because I think that he would love it. And every time I travel, actually, um, whether it's to cook or just to travel around and I know that I'm going to see chefs, I always have maybe like a dozen bottles in my suitcase so that I can share the ingredient with with the chefs and they can use it and use it with rice or use it with pasta. So when I see you guys in New York, I'll bring you some. For oh, sure. Sure. So say, can I put in an order? <laughs> yes. Make a like pasta with something fishy is the most iconic combination. But wait, right? I wanted I wanted to talk about your crab and water spinach ravioli dish. Yes. Yeah. Because you it was Actually, with the baby crab fat. Yes, it's the same crab fat, and actually, the the baby, the spinach ravioli that I that I did was one of the first things that I created when I came back from Italy, and it was really inspired by be visiting Venice and trying one of those seafood ravioli dishes. And in my head, I already knew. I said, "Oh my goodness, when I get home, I'm gonna get our beautiful crab, put it into the ravioli." Put a beautiful lemon cream sauce, but using our Filipino calamansi, and then drizzle the crab fat on it. So I think that to this day, that probably would be the most iconic creation that I've done. I still do it. It's I serve it in one of my restaurants and use it a lot for my catering events. A lot of the tasting dinners that I do. Freezing I a little bit. It's Can a wonderful us? marriage. Yeah. I'll, I'll make it for you when I go to New York. <laughs> It's, it's wonderful because, um, I think that it marries being able to use the most beautiful Filipino ingredients and do it in, in using it for an Italian dish without compromising the Italianness or the Filipino-ness of the, of the dish and the ingredients. It's a wonderful marriage of, of the two cultures and representing the best of both. I love that so much. And I feel like pasta is such an incredible medium for a lot of different cultural expressions. And um, I always joke at my pasta pop-up that Sarah's Nana might be rolling around in her grave, but we do a lot of similar things. Um, one of our signature dishes is a sweet corn and chive raviolo aloovo with miso brown butter, incorporating all sorts of different cultures and ingredients, not necessarily native to Italian cooking. When I read about your your crab and water spinach ravioli. I was like, that's, that's so interesting. That's kind of exactly something that I try to accomplish at my pasta right? pop-up. So it's very cool that you were able to do that in such an iconic and uh, perfect way, honoring both, both cultures. Because I feel like it does take a good sense of responsibility. You know, and like you said, where it's like, you don't take away the Italian essence, you don't take away the Filipino essence. Exactly. And that marriage just has to work so perfectly. And I feel like the way that you've done it is just so masterfully done. And and yeah, I think, I think it takes a lot of, uh, it's also very courageous because the Italians are lovely. I was about to say, <laughs> Margarita, you have a backbone because yeah, you <laughs> just, uh... you're messing with the Italians and as someone who has done exactly. the same. <laughs> it's not easy. I know, I know how purist they are, right? I was on Instagram literally yesterday and I follow this, I can't remember the page, I wish I could say uh, mention their name, but it's it's very like filmed in Italy, like in Italy. The captions are in Italian. The chefs are like Michelin star Italian chefs. I, not a single lick of English in the whole page. That's well, they're like Italian. my Nana does it differently. It, it, everyone gets very protective. Like they fight it, amongst each other. It, everyone gets super protective. That's why I almost think you're better off doing a raviolo with miso brown butter than you are claiming that this is a cacio e pepe or a carbonara because then people will come for you. 
it is better to just completely go off book and do something different than it is to claim the authenticity of something. Um, so I always say when, whenever we introduce people to the pasta pop-up, we say awesome? we are, you know, proudly ourselves and we are not authentic. That takes so much creativity. It really does. Uh, but you've opened several restaurants and concepts. So can you tell us a little bit more about Grace Park? Because I feel like that was a really interesting and unique venture um, after Chibo. Yeah, actually Grace Park is um, my farm to table concept. It's named after a an area here in, in, in Manila where my father's family had a home. Apart from it being the name of the place, what, what I, I um, love about it is that the word grace took on a different meaning because the entire restaurant was built with recycled things, old wood, old chairs from um, my family's old Pizza Hut restaurants because my family has the franchise for Pizza Hut in the Philippines. I can't believe and we're just then, now mentioning this. This is big, important. Big I live in New York City. <laughs> I order pizza. I the, with the crust. I I'm as, I'm from Ohio, so I don't even have to pretend to be cool when it comes to pizza. I have pizza hut pop downs. Anyway, sorry. sorry, sorry got please keep going. Yeah. So all the like the cutlery is unmatched. The plates are unmatched. Everything is 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 um recycled so that it could represent like sustainability and using like thrown objects etc to make a place beautiful. And what it is is we kind of the, the word grace takes on a different meaning because then grace comes from the fact that we help the Filipino farmer and the Filipino artisan by highlighting the ingredients that come from them. The range of the dishes have, we make meatballs, but we use um, Filipino grass-fed meat for the meatballs. And then we we do um, dishes from my home province as well. Very kind of like um, local, regional dishes from my home province. And yet, we, we also have steaks, but serve them with sides that are, you know, Filipino vegetables, etc. And I, I think what, what I love about it is that it's a 10-year-old restaurant and it's still around. And I think that we were kind of like pioneers in, in doing a farm-to-table concept. And up to this day, I think that the, the Philippines is actually lucky that we didn't industrialize farming so quickly because then we're so behind in the way that we grow our vegetables and our produce that we're actually way ahead because we're still doing things that. in a very old-fashioned way. So I think that that's the concept that we want to highlight at Grace Park. I love that concept. We are so behind that we're actually ahead because that's what we're seeing <laughs> all the time in America. You know, we went through this crazy industrialized period and sort of like blundered our food supply and now everyone's yeah. like wanting to purchase things from farms upstate and it's it's interesting because like i mean we were, we were talking to jacques pepin and he mentioned he's like i don't even know what the word organic was because but when Everything he was a kid was organic, didn't I'm even sure. it's just it just was and i'm <laughs> i'm really into the wine world and um was studying to my w set and i was talking about natural wines and people like uh, i don't really like natural wine and i'm just like do you realize that all wine was natural wine until it wasn't <laughs> like it actually was supposed to be natural and not referring to like funky kombucha. I'm referring to like the method of producing wine has just changed right. so much. And there was just that period of time where everything kind of yeah, became I, so. I, I love how you phrase that though. That's, yeah. that's really special. I love that. And Grace Park earned an award. People took notice actually of Grace Park because of the fact that we were the first actually farm to table place. It's so incredible. And I think it really took your original concept of marrying Filipino ingredients with, you know, utilizing them in different dishes to the next level by really becoming so specific with the farms and the way you're sourcing those ingredients. Yes. So it feels like a really cool next step mm -hmm. after, after, but these days you have a show, the crawl on Metro channel. You guys really look things up. <laughs> It's fat. You're a fascinating person. Yeah. I could, we couldn't stop. I did the crawl first in Italy and then we did one in New York. I don't know if you were able to see it on YouTube. And very recently I did one in Hong Kong. So, um, it's, it's a Manila show and they have other hosts actually that do other cities, but I just feel like really blessed that I was able to do it in New York. It was really hard, um, to get into like the best restaurants. Um, we had like a locator in New York who was trying to get us uh, to film in certain places, but she was never successful. 
But what we ended up doing was doing it like the guerrilla way. And mm. it was so sure. great because places like Balthazar, I mean, we just said, can we just have a table? And they said, sure, you can. Just promise not to film our clients. If you want to film, just make sure that you just film yourselves. So they were like really nice about it. Places like Pies and Thighs in New York. Mm. We also just kind of like knocked on the door and asked if we could film. And I think that the owner kind of like Googled me. And when she found out it was me, she said, oh, of course, come in. And She's like, anything was, you want. <laughs> exactly. Most of the, the places that we ended up shooting were the best ones were the ones that were unplanned. So mm. um, um, even the Filipino restaurants were also like really nice to shoot. In one or two sentences, can you summarize the premise of The Crawl? Well, The Crawl is really like discovering a city by doing like a food crawl in like very distinct places that can um, showcase the food scene in a place. For us in New York, though, it was for me so much more important because since I grew up there, I made sure that, you know, we could do like Cat's Deli and Russ and Daughters and really the more iconic places. And apart from that, we were able to shoot um, ourselves in Central Park. And uh, my my grandparents actually have a bench dedicated to them in the park. We featured that as well. So apart from just the food in the city, I think that we were able to share the vibe of the city with with our viewers, the places that we covered, and also the the choice of the restaurants, um, including places like the Hot Nathan's and all the other the, the real things that that make New York New York, right? Apart from the the tasting restaurants and and then making sure that um, New York's more iconic like street food places were also featured. Speaking of a challenge, you know, being able to summarize a city in a food crawl is so difficult. Uh, I don't know if you know this, actually, you have no reason to know this, but a big thing that I do is is cuisine-specific food crawls on Instagram. So I actually did a Filipino food crawl with Chef Leah Cohen, who I texted last night, and she said she knows you. Yes, yeah, she's been to Manila as well. Her, she took me on a Filipino food crawl in Queens. We had all the things. It was it was so incredible, and I and I was actually texting with her. We're supposed to meet up again soon, and I I remember talking to her about Filipino food and how it's underrepresented in favor of Thai food and Vietnamese food. And I feel like this is a challenge amongst many people who really uh, pioneer Filipino Filipino food. But while we're talking about Filipino people, you know, something I love about the Filipino community, similarly to the Italian community, Mexican, like there's such a strong sense of pride, and so I knew. When uh, we were going to interview, I was like, I'm going to text Leah and I'm going to text Chef Jordan and Dino. They will absolutely <laughs> know you and be so excited. And I was correct. There were, you know, there's such a sense of Filipino pride. Also for Mexico, though, you know, there's so, so much of a, of a real fraternity between Mexico and us. Because although we were ruled by Spain for 333 mm -hmm. years, we were ruled via Mexico. The governor general of Mexico was the one who was in charge of the Philippines. If you look at our names, our names are the same mm -hmm. as yours. Every town has a has a plaza with a church, and it's all. It, you will feel at home when you come here. I grew up Catholic, and every year my church, because there was a a a high uh, Latino and Filipino uh, <laughs> communities that would go to this church every year in the summer. There was a like tri-cultural barbecue. So it was like a lot of white Americans, you know, burgers and hot dogs. And then it would be like the Latinos and Filipinos rolling up. They got like mute sound systems going. They have like these huge tins of like uh, food, you know. And I remember just eating like all of the different dishes and the Latinos and the Filipinos, those dishes were gone. Everyone was like, what is this? This is incredible. It was, I just remember... But I think I need to have more of a Philippine. Let, well, we're gonna here in New York. We're gonna go. There's a there's um a few restaurants definitely in Elmhurst and in the Queens area. There's so much cool food culture in Queens. We could just dedicate a day to a Queens food crawl. No, and, definitely. And eat. They say that oh, well. the, the the Filipino cuisine there is like super authentic. The the area where actually the the broker that ships everything from the states to us in Manila. 
is is right there in 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 Queens. Jo it's called Johnny Cargo. That's the only way we can get stuff from America to Manila really quickly. <laughs> and oh, that's amazing. I know that like that whole street where they are is is where all the where all the Filipino like barbecue places are and I'm so I'm so like really excited to kind of experiment and and walk through that area and discover and and really like see what they're doing with Filipino food there. We we are absolutely going to have to do that. I think I ate like five lumpia <laughs> or more. I just couldn't stop. It's one of my favorite things. I should tell you a story about my days there in the 70s because my mother was like part of this circle that would do like Studio 54 almost every night, right? And of course, we being the younger generation, we were never assured to get in unless we were with her. But on the nights that we weren't with her, we would bring lumpia and pancit to the doorman. And the minute that they saw that we brought the food, they would let us in. So that's how oh my we got into the I mean, how could you not let someone in who's bringing you oh my gosh, absolutely. food? That would be ridiculous. Behind you is this incredible collection of pepper grinders. And before we got online, we were chatting about this, but can you please tell us about your pepper grinder collection and a very recent special edition? Yes. Well, actually my pepper mill collection is already like up to like 370 pieces. So I don't buy like normal looking ones anymore because I need to make sure that they're like super unique. So the ones that you see in the back, are, this is probably just a third of what I have. The other, the rest is like on the other side of the shelf. But the most special newest addition to my collection actually are Tony's Pepper Mills. Oh, wow. These, are, these were given to oh me God. by his daughter's au pair, Myra. And they're actually Mario Batali's pepper. I mean, his designed pepper mills, but they came from, from Tony's kitchen. And wow. Myra came to Manila about six months ago. And she told me that I have something to add to your collection. And I think that you're going to cherish this totally because then, so this, this is like my, probably my most treasured, um, two pepper mills in my collection because they're from him. And I can just imagine. I mean, the dishes that he created using the pepper from here, the, these two will always be in my heart. So I thank Myra for sharing this with me. When, when I finally build my restaurant to showcase the pepper mills, I promise these will be in a glass case for sure. I would have burst out crying immediately. <laughs> no, I cried when Myra gave it to me because Myra is also an, a, a good friend. I think that, you know, this coming from from Tony's kitchen is just like super priceless. It'll be forever, forever cherished. That's I such a, a to have his duck breast, but I think it, <laughs> it went in auction. So <laughs> yeah, that that thing is probably worth a lot. But um, aside from the physical legacy that he's left on you with the pepper mills, what would you say would be the most lasting impact Anthony Bourdain had on you? You know, something of his or something he taught you that you carry with you to this day and for the future? Well, I think that not just for me, but for me and my son, Amado, I think that he inspired us to love what we do with food so much more. And he also taught us to not just appreciate the food part, but to also like love the culture and the people that create the food regardless of where we 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 enjoy it and where we appreciate it and i think that also really truly just his zest for life i think that he taught us to just never stop to just keep going taking every opportunity that we can to make the most the most of things and and really just be sponges and take take the chance every time the opportunity comes to travel and and appreciate really not just what you eat but what you learn from being where you are and apart from that i think it's also us realize that because we are in this industry to be able to be creative doing such a basic function you know i mean you create food and food is what makes people exist and live i think that that's what he he taught us that 
to be able to do that creatively and to be to be such a I mean an important part of imparting I mean such a basic function in life with others. Um, I think that that's that's really the biggest lesson that that Tony's taught us, and it's a lesson that we carry with us forever. That's amazing. And uh, I just want to say I could tell that Tony must have loved you. I mean, you're like creative and brilliant and very conscious of you know. Uh, like you were talking about like your restaurants, how you want to support like the local farmers and the, making sure that, you know, you have like the local artisans and uh, have stuff in your restaurants. And uh, I, know, I clearly like you stand for what you believed in. And that's that's amazing. I'm glad that he brought us all here together. I know every day, every day we get to experience his legacy by meeting, meeting people and connecting with people who clearly at least had one thing in common, which is our love and respect for a person who has impacted so many. So thank you so much. I'm so thankful that that um, you allowed me to do this with you. And I just want to say that we'll miss him. We miss him so much. And um, we, we have him in our hearts. And he makes us make our work so much more meaningful because of what he's taught us. Rather than kind of like, um, focusing on the, the sadness of, of losing him. I think that maybe a few days after the loss, it was kind of like more important to just remember all the good things that he gave to us and, and what, what he brought to us through the years of his work. Up to this day, I, I choose not, not to remember the day that he left because then is his presence is still so big. So, mm. I mean, when you watch any of his shows, it's it's almost like he's still around. That's a really beautiful sentiment. And I know it's shared by many, many people that we speak to at least. So thank you so much for spending your evening with us. It's yeah. 11 p.m. in Manila. I don't know how you're awake. I would be passing out. And I'm so thankful. So I promise we'll see each other face to face. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Friends of Anthony Bourdain. You can listen along wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review. Let us know if there's someone you're dying for us to interview on the pod. And be sure to check us out on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all the social media platforms at Friends of Anthony Bourdain.